Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 2 Kings 6, starting with verse 24. And the last time we covered the highs and lows of ministry and life with Elisha, his miracles, uh, harassment from the Syrians, and the mercy shown to the Syrians, and that the raiding stopped. Unfortunately, as we continue through chapter 6, we'll see that now we have an all-out war, um, more trouble from the Syrians, and God's timing in handling it all. So we pretty much covered... 6 and 7 really go together. I kind of made a delineation. Remember, the chapter delineations were not inspired. They weren't claimed to be inspired. They just kind of broke it up for easier reading. So I covered all the way up chapter 6, all the way up to verse 23. Now we're going to do 24 through 720 because I believe they go together. So in 6, in verse 24, it says... And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab or a pint of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Not very appetizing. Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the fleshing, pre- threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. You know, the Bible records history. A lot of it's not pretty. It doesn't whitewash it. It kind of shows you the depths of depravity that mankind can sink, sink to. But we see the siege of Samaria causes a famine. And it's a horrible story. Uh, you also have to understand siege warfare back then. It was very common. There wasn't airplanes or an air force. So your protection lied in your walled cities. And some of these cities, walled cities, were kind of like city-states. They were huge. And what happened was the enemy army would come and surround the wall with their troops, especially the ingress and the egress, the gates, and they would keep people from leaving or anybody from coming in to help. They would cut off the supply lines, and what they would do is they would starve the city into submission. We saw this all the way really up to World War II with um, uh, Stalingrad and you know the Germans versus the, the Russians. Very interesting and then back to Berlin. So, um, you know, this is, this, it's, the war's not pretty. It's definitely not. And we see really a, maybe a change of leadership or a change of heart. So the last part of the chapter told us there was no more raids. This was an all-out war, okay? And, and sometimes when leadership changes anywhere between the king and the general of the army, um, they kind of feel like they have to prove themselves and they kind of start trouble. And we see that today. Um, it's nothing's really changed in thousands of years, but I don't have to repeat it. There's this horrible circumstance with these two women um, starving, and they they make a pact, each one to kill their child, and eat him. Cannibalism. 
Um, people do bizarre things in extreme circumstances. I mean, me personally, uh, I, I'd, I'd rather die than to, to do something so heinous as that. And we see that the, the woman is really crying out more for justice than she is for food because this other woman either tricked her or she had a change of heart. She said, you, you, you reneged on the deal. Um, and, and this is the problem that the Israelites had. They completely lost their moral compass. Anything goes. You know, whatever God said in the Ten Commandments, they just disregarded all of them pretty much, started worshiping idols, and God took his protective hand off of that nation. You know, and I wonder, in the United States, how far do we have to fall before God pretty much lets it loose with us as well? I think 9-11 was a, a real big wake-up call to realize that, hey, we're part of the rest of the world. Stuff happens here too, San Bernardino, things like that. So uh, I think unless there's a great revival in this country, I don't think that uh, we're going to enjoy the protections that we've enjoyed for so many years. Just my personal opinion, I could be wrong. Verse 30, it says, Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by on the wall, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. I'm going to get to that. Then he said, God, do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, meaning the prophet, the son of Shapheth, remains on him today. But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent the man ahead of him, but before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Elisha speaking about the king. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, and hold him fast at the door, is not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him, and he said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? And this is the fickleness of the the unbeliever towards the believer. You know, King Joram, you look at some of these kings, and sadly enough, they had this great position to lead the people. But they were, at best, maybe some of them were religious men. Some of the kings were awesome. I actually named my son after King Josiah, who was a great king in the Old Testament of Judah. Uh, but a lot of them, they just kind of played the game. You know, they, they, they filled the role, so to speak. Um, but they were a de facto spiritual leader, and a lot of them didn't act like it. And this king specifically did not. And you see that he loved the believer when things were going well, and you see this in the world. And he hated the believer when things were not going well, because the believer represents God. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says that the believer is an ambassador all right, of Christ. And it's a weird thing where there's two worlds on this planet. There's the world of the flesh, the world of the dead, the walking dead, so to speak, those that never are born again and they die and they, they perish in eternity. And then there's a whole other group of people that are the saved, that are born again of the Spirit, that we, if that's us, we're ambassadors to that world of the dead, trying to tell them about eternal life, trying to be a part of that revival process. Um, you know, King Joram calls Elisha in verse 21, my father, oh, my father. Here he wants to kill him, right? You see the flip-flopping like a light switch. Okay, James 1.8 says that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, and King Joram was a double-minded man. He could play the religion card at times, but you can see that most of his life he's unstable. You know? And depending on how stubborn the person is, 
uh, few take an introspective look to see my circumstances are terrible. Um, could I be a part of the problem? You know? Um, but apparently this king didn't. Verse 33, he says, This calamity is from the Lord. Again, some will bitterly curse God to the very end before they took a look at themselves. It is clear. You know, Joram knew this. He knew what the Bible said. He knew what the Old Testament said. And it was very clear that if the Israelites were that ungodly and that egregious in their sins, that they would suffer military defeat, which they were here, famine, which they were here, and sorrow. This was, you know, it's not like God said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to torment you people, but he just said, I'm just not going to protect you. And then whatever happens, happens. You know, you can't worship demons and then think you're going to get favors from God at the same time. It doesn't happen. Um, and verse 33, it does appear the way the king is responding to Elisha, the prophet, we can make an inference that Elisha told him at some point, don't do anything yet. You know, wait on God. It was a horrible situation, but wait on God. So Joram's like, enough of this. I'm not waiting on God anymore. This is a horrible situation. And he blames the believer. And you know what? That may happen to us. We may counsel some in the world, and they, they may come to us in desperation, and we give them counsel, and they don't like our counsel. Or they don't like the way God's unfolding events, so we get the blame for it because we're his representatives. So get used to it. <laughs> it happens. It's quite possible that, that the waiting was for the nation to repent wholesale. And I'm going to read Second Chronicles 7.14 a little bit later. In verse 30, it's interesting, the king tears his clothes, which is, and he has sackcloth on under his clothes. Now, normally they would tear their clothes and wear sackcloth as a sign of grief, mourning, and repentance. But the king's heart's not fully in this. His king, he's, I just don't, from everything I read, I don't think he's a godly man. Um, he, he plays, like I said, he plays spiritual when he needs to. Um, but for the most part, he's not. He doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. And again, today, if you look at Matthew 23, who was Jesus? Jesus' biggest problem was with the religious leaders. He felt that they were phonies. In Matthew 23, he devotes a whole chapter to, you know, no other way to say this, but cutting them down for their hypocrisy and for their uh, bringing proselytes into their religion and making them as much as damned as the religious leaders. You know, they had the, the rites and the rituals, and people do that today. They may have the rites and the rituals, but their heart is far from God. You either know the Lord or you don't. And again, the media will tell you that this world is divided into black and white, rich and poor, blue states and red states, but the Bible says the true division in the world is the unsaved and the saved. And for those of us who are saved, we need to give the good news of this other world that's coming because this world is expiring. Uh, I don't think we have to go far to figure that one out. Even scientists will tell us that. And we move on to chapter 7. It continues. Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a sea of flour, fine flour, shall be sold for a shekel, cheap, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Remember, there's a, there's a famine going on. It sounds unreasonable. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned, in other words, one of the king's trusted officers, uh, answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, this, this thing, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. That's Elisha's response to this officer. God's going to perform a miracle. 
24 hours, this time, the next day, um, this is what's going to happen, but many are faithless. The king is faithless, and his officer, if you really understand the Hebrew and the translation, he's, it's an insult. You know, s- uh, unbelief is a sin to God, but mockery is even worse. And we'll see that fulfillment where Elisha says, well, you're going to see it, but you're not going to partake of it. How's that going to work out? Well, we'll, f- we'll find out in a few verses. And we find that some worse, worthless things that we wouldn't think about touching to eat are, are now very expensive in Samaria because the supply routes are cut off. The farms are cut off. And a donkey's head and bird droppings are expensive. Now, uh, in the Hebrew, bird droppings can also be translated seed, uh, seed clusters. If you know a lot about birds like I do, a lot of the times when they defecate, they drop seed pods anyway. So however the translation, and some words in Hebrew, you know, even the scholars look at it and like, uh, not really sure what this means. But, um, you know, it's just something that you, you wouldn't choose to eat. Um, you would only eat if you were starving. A donkey's head, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, if you're hungry, I guess make a fire and everything's good barbecued, I suppose. But, um, you know, extremely valuable. So here the prophet is saying, yeah, but fine flour and, and good food this time tomorrow is going to be dirt cheap. And you're like, well, how can that be? Everybody's starving. There is no fine flour here. What's the answer to that? And, you know, in college I enjoyed economics. The answer is economics. Um, we're going to find that there's an introduction into the marketplace. That's what my teacher used to say, my professor. He used to talk about the marketplace, which was the economic uh, venue. But what's going to happen is there's going to be a supply, uh, a glut of really good food that's going to show up, which is going to change the, the price, supply and demand. So the more you put a, a great supply into the marketplace, it becomes cheaper because it's so readily available. When you pull supply out of the marketplace, prices go up. You see what I'm saying? There's no fine flour. All they can find, oh, a donkey head. Oh, we're starving. So the price is going to increase because the supply has really dropped dramatically. And, and we see this in the business world. But so economics is fascinating because there's a lot of mathematics in it. Um, My personal opinion, this is another discussion for another time, is that anyone running for office as a politician should be forced to go to an economic class because they waste our money like crazy. So that's another discussion for another time. Um, But let's move on. Verse 3. It says, Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. Now because of the laws of... uh, Contagion, you know, the Bible spoke about how they were to conduct themselves, how there had to be a certain separation from the rest of society because of the way it was transmitted. Um, as I believe it's a, a bacteria. Um, actually, it's, it's curable today. It's called Hansen's disease with a triple antibiotic. Anyway, they were to be um, separated, for the most part, from society. And they were at the gate. And they said to one another... Why are we sitting here until we die? You know, they were hungry too. If we say we will enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we, we die also. Now therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, well, we shall but die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. And when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the the noise of horses. 
the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us, mercenaries. This was their thinking. You know, it can't be the Israelites. We've got them penned up in that city and we hear these noises and it's got to be somebody that came from, you know, foreigners that, are, that come that were hired to, to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. Their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. So the lepers are the first to receive of this great miracle that the prophet Elisha speaks about. Lepers had two afflictions. They had leprosy, which was not fun, and they also were starving to death like everybody else. And they figured, well, we have nothing to lose. You know, if they kill us, well, no more leprosy, no more starvation. But if they keep us alive, at least we'll fill our bellies, you know. And, and listen, on our level, I know for me personally, when you're really hungry, and I don't think we understand, we could never understand literally being starved. It must be, but you feel like the, the, the churning in your stomach and it's grumbling and your body is saying, you better put something in here. You know, we're hungry. So um, hunger can be a horrible thing. And many people in the world suffer hunger. Um, but, you know, they, they were thinking, we're just going to starve here. We might, let's take a chance with the Syrians. That was their mentality. And what, what does God do? He makes this noise, um, this supernaturally, that the Syrians hear and they start to panic. And they leave their food, their clothing, their tents, their livestock. Uh, and they just take off. They just head towards the Jordan River. Verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing what is right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeeper of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there. Not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied, and the tents intact. And the gatekeeper called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. So the, the lepers, they're having a great time. I mean, they're hiding stuff for later. They're like changing clothes. How do I look in this? You know, they're, they're eating. They're, they're probably stuffing their faces. You know, I could just picture the scene, what was going on there. I know I have a very active imagination. But <laughs> somewhere in between the, the turkey bone, the turkey legs, and, and, and the stuff in their face with bread, some, they say, this is terrible. You know, this is good news. This is great. And here, they're still suffering in the city, and we're here stuffing our faces. So they get convicted. You know, how can, we, how can we partake of this bread when others are starving? You know, as Christians, how can we partake of this bread of life, receive all the multiple blessings, and not share it with others who are starving and dying spiritually? They're hungering. It's amazing the, the images that Jesus uses about being thirsty and being hungry not for food, but for God, you know? So there's a great parallel that, can, a parallel that can be made where, you know, we... Somebody once said that Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread. That's a great analogy. But 
Listen, we have Jesus Christ. He's the bread of life. He, he takes us and carries us into eternity. He's promised us so many things. He's good to us. We're blessed. And even the shyest among us says, has to say in their quiet time with the Lord, Lord, I, I, I want to share. You know, help me to not be so shy. Help me to open my mouth. And I have to tell you, as a new believer, I was a little intimidated first. Part of it was I didn't know anything. <laughs> I just had the zeal, and I knew nothing. You know, there was nothing behind it. Uh, but, you know, sometimes it's also social intimidation. I actually went to visit a, a gentleman that I know who had a, a really bad accident in, in the Care One facility. And I, I like to have privacy when I'm in a hospital or one of these facilities because you want to talk one-on-one, -on -one, you want to pray with that person, and God would have it that the, the curtain was open and there was somebody else right there, and I could see him looking at me and he was listening. So I'm like, and then I started talking to both of them because he was interested, you know, and I, I shared Jesus with him, and it was a cool thing, but I, I just, it's not a private thing, and, and, you know, I like things, I'm an orderly person, and God every, many times says, well, it's not going to be as orderly as you like it. You, you have another audience. <laughs> And then the nurse came in, and you know, so it was kind of cool because um, I, I talked to the man as well as the person I was visiting, and I, I shared my bread with him. I shared my, it was bread for three uh, this, this afternoon, so it was pretty cool. Uh, God knows. And as God shared the message of Jesus with the shepherds, who were the lowest of low, the lowest of the low in society, here, prior to Jesus, God also allows the lepers to taste of the first fruits of his miracles before anyone else. And then he convicts them. Probably this is the Holy Spirit saying, you guys are being a little selfish. There's other people in that city. And they, they all, in agreement, say, all right, let's tell the gatekeepers, let's tell everybody that all this stuff is here. There's enough for everybody. So he uses the lepers as the partakers of the first fruits and then also to be the messengers for everyone else to enjoy as well. Verse 12 then the king arose in the night and said to his servants, <laughs> this guy, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the, in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. A Trojan horse sort of thing. And one of the, his servants answered and said, please, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, or indeed I say that they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. They have this plan. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. So the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. So King Joram is suspicious. Uh, again, he's, he's a faithless type of guy. Um, he only uses God when it's convenient for him. Um, and, and, but he does investigate the claim of the lepers. He didn't say absolutely not. Uh, he... he he should have defaulted to what the man of God, Elisha, told him. And I believe that when Elisha was holed, out, holed up in his home with the elders, that they were praying. Um, and then the king ends up knocking on the door. The messenger comes to the door. 
But in verse 13, King, King Joram thinks that it's an ambush. You know, we're going to go there, and they're baiting us, and they're, they're lying in wait for us, and when we're out of the city, they're going to attack us, and then they're going to go into the city and kill everybody. Again, he told, was told by the man of God, it's, it's okay, it's, it's safe. Um, and then the lepers tell him and confirm it, and he still doesn't get the picture. But, you know, he doesn't have a relationship with God, you know, and, and he's paranoid, and he's fearful. You know, and you ever meet somebody, you, you, I'm sure we all know, I know some, that they just, they don't want God, but their lives are a torment, you know, and it's a sad thing to watch because you care about them, and they're just paranoid all the time, they think somebody's out to get them, they think, you know, they always think of the worst, that's the type of guy that Joram was, but I'm sure we know some in that situation as well. I, I just want to go back to something, uh, too, that I said before, um, you know, these faithless Israelites, these godless Israelites, many of them, they just couldn't look at their own circumstances and say, where do I fit in here? What did I do? They just right away go and they blame God. And I'm just going to be honest because it, it is a long time ago and I do try to remember my former life before I was 25, 26 and received the Lord. And, um, you know, I was like that too. So I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little patient. You know, I can criticize these guys thousands of years ago, but even today, there's some that I, I try to be very patient with. Because I remember me before I was a believer, and it was the same thing. Whenever something was wrong in my life, oh, God's, he's, he, he, he doesn't care for me. I have no luck. You know, you say all these things because you, you're not a spiritual person. And the only time God comes in is when you're on your, you think you're going to die, near-death experience, God save me. And then the other time is when things don't go right and you blame God for all your problems. And this is what we do when we don't have the Spirit of God. We don't know any better. We're dumb. Um, but when we become Christians and the Spirit of God fills us, we understand who He is. Everything starts to make sense now. Amen? All right. Verse 17. Last few verses. Now the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned. And the, there's a lot of idioms and expressions in the Hebrew that when it goes to the English, you're like, what does that mean? Um, and what it means is the officer on whose hand the king leaned. And that was an expression meaning he was his right-hand man. That's what we would, our idioms in, in English, in American culture. So he, 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 had, he was somebody that he could literally lean on and help to get him around, especially if he was having physical issues. But, you know, this is the guy that he is like the, the, the president's cabinet. He's one of his cabinet members. Okay, so to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled him in the gate and he died. Now this was the guy who mocked God's pro the prophecy of God. Just as the man of God, meaning Elisha, had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king, saying, two seahs of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. It comes back. Then the officer had answered the man of God and said, now look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Kind of sad, but, you know, you see, you see uh, people in the world today, politicians, uh, powerful people, they just think they're going to live forever. They, 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 some of them have such an haughty attitude. They think they're so great. You know, they bully others. And no, it eventually it comes back. And this is a great example of that. This officer was in charge. He had weapons. He had command of the military. He wasn't going to listen to anything Elisha said or the, 
the people of God, the, the Jews who are really being devout. He, he just mocked them. He mocked their God. And we see that today. But it's not going to be like that forever. And, and the prophecy was to the officer, you're going to see it, but you're not going to partake. Hmm, how does that work? Okay, he just got trampled. You, you know, stampede. You ever see him in, like, um, in, in a stadium or some of these countries where there's no security? And it's sad. Somebody goes to see a, a soccer game and they get trampled to death. Well, you could imagine the people when the gates were open, food, food. <laughs> they, they knocked him down and, <laughs> and they all like ran over him and he died. So he got to see it, but he was too late. You know, <laughs> and I, here I am laughing, but you know, this is this is what it is. It, it records history. It records, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, <laughs> but here it is. So the first thing that we see is that the the Syrians are just a constant aggravation to the Israelites. The Syrians were really a picture, even as believers, of the world that they just harass you, they aggravate you. Today it's somebody at your job. Tomorrow it's a family. Oh, you're the Christian. And the way they say it is, is dripping with sarcasm. You know, They just want to make fun of you. Where's your God now? Or well, what about this? And, um, and you're always taking those hits. Uh, and the Israelites literally took the hits. And thank God we live in a country with freedom of expression. At least right now we do. Uh, but you know, it's the daily grind as Christians. We go out there as believers and we get harassed at times. We get aggravated. Maybe we get um, discriminated against because of what we believe. Maybe our boss you know, doesn't promote us. Maybe because you know we're not going out getting drunk with the crew, and we're not trustworthy because you know because they all do this and they all have something on each other, and we prefer not to live like that. Okay, so this is what we have. As long as we live on this earth, we're going to have the Syrians, and one day it's going to be this guy is a Syrian. Next week it's going to be that guy, but we're always going to have it on this side of eternity until the Lord returns. Two, God's view of unbelief and faithlessness is very serious. Very serious. You know, I, it, it's kind of tragic when, when someone who's a self-professed believer and they always have this Eeyore syndrome. You know, they're always, ooh, like there's never any joy and they, they don't believe that God's going to do anything and they you know, they, they, even their prayers are so anemic. Um, and it's, I've never seen somebody like that actually have success. You know, God does get offended when, we, especially as his people, we don't believe in him. You know, we don't believe that he can do these things. We don't believe that he loves us. You know, it's kind of almost like walking in, in, in both worlds. And the king and the officer were a picture of that. You know, they, I don't know, they, the king's while he's walking on a wall says to the woman well if the lord isn't going to help you what can i do there's nothing i can do so they kind of knew that the lord was there they were the head over god's people but they didn't really have a relationship with him they kind of were like again james says double-minded in god when it's convenient and expedient in in the world when things go wrong in you know everyday life uh, they should have known better the third thing we see is that god's timing is always best and we don't understand all the time why God chooses to act the way he does and when he does. And it's kind of funny. I mean, <laughs> sometimes I get frustrated with the situation and in prayer I'm like, you know what, Lord? It just would be so much better if X, Y, and Z. Like here I am, Joe DeProsimo's counseling God. Now, Lord, can you imagine the Lord going, oh, Joe, I, I never thought of that. Wow, thank you for your help. And I, I realized what a stupid foolish thing I just said, but we get frustrated with life, you know, and we're human beings. 
we do dumb things. You know, like, oh, I'm sorry, Lord. That was, that was a dumb comment. But thank God he loves us. <laughs> but he, his, his timing is the best. And we don't know why God chose to stop things when he did and to frighten the Syrians so that the Israelites could... Now, you know, it's quite possibly, too, with these walled cities, that think about this, that the farms were outside the city, and when the Israelites holed up to protect themselves against the Syrians, well, guess who had the farms? The Syrians. They stole their wheat, they stole their whatever the heck was growing, and they, they were eating really good. It's quite possible that when, you know, all this stuff makes sense. And then what happens is when, when the, the lepers find it and the, and the Israelites find it, well, there's all this food probably that the Syrians stole from them from their farms. So it, it, it all makes perfect sense. I love the scripture. Um, you know, it's quite possible that God waited till this moment because he wanted to bring about repentance. And this is a scripture that many are familiar with, but I'm going to read it in Second Chronicles 7.14. You've heard this many of times. God says, if my people who are called by my name, if, it's a conditional statement, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So God maybe stopped the carnage when, as a nation, the Israelites just individually just started saying, oh, Lord, we've really gone far from you. And, every, and people are just praying. It's like a revival in this horrible situation. And you know, not to really get so deep into it, but the women with the children, remember? The one kills her child. You know, if she had faith, um, she might have been hungry for another day, but she could have been the one partaking of the food with everybody else instead of doing the horrible thing that she did to her child. You know, again, God's timing. That's a hard thing, folks, because we have to trust God no matter what, no matter what the situation you know, we trust God. You know, it's very important. Um, and, and, and I've said on Sunday, it makes me laugh because, you know, the, all the whys. Why God? Why God? And it would be funny if when we get to heaven, he has the why room, you know, with all these posters and videos. And Joe, this over there, that corner. All those questions you asked me why, here, there's the answer. You know what I'm saying? And it's a timing issue. You know, he just says it's in my timing. And, and you're like, whoa, could you imagine going through the why room? I don't even know if that exists. And you're just like flipping pages. Oh, I asked that at 10 years old. I asked that at 18. I asked that at 35. Wow, I really wanted to know. Now I know. Thank you, the Lord. For whatever reason, even as his children, he doesn't always tell us why. He just asks us to trust him. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. The world walks by sight. We have to walk by faith. Okay? Even in Jesus' day, the blind people came to Jesus. They didn't necessarily have to see him. They had to walk by faith because they had no sight. Right? Who is this? What does he look like? It doesn't matter. The voice that he had, it was something about him. The blind people were drawn to Jesus. And he healed their eyes. You know, but as, as human beings, we have two eyes that have a great field of view, and we're so used to walking by sight, but God calls us to walk by faith, and that's a hard thing to do. I'm just going to admit that. So, bottom line is, we pray that God, even though we don't see, that we trust everything He does. And that goes to the God's timing issue. Once we trust, it takes the figuring out of the whole thing and the questioning out of the whole thing, and just we accept it. And maybe one day there isn't a Y room. But you know what? When we're in glory, none of this stuff's going to matter anyway. 
Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.